Pitt, please open your Bibles to chapter 11. We'll be completing that chapter today that we started last week. Am I on here? Am I on, Dave? Okay. Doesn't sound like it. Am I on? Am I loud enough? Am I loud enough? Turn it up, Dave. Okay. Your ears are really good. Philip Yancey describes a unique funeral custom among certain African Muslim groups. Close family and friends encircle the casket and quietly gaze at the body. No one sings, there's no flowers, and there's no tears. Then a peppermint candy is passed around to everyone. At a signal, each puts one of the candies in their mouths, and they continue to stare at the body. And when the candy is gone, each participant is reminded that the life of this person is over. They believe that life simply dissolves like the peppermint candy in their mouth. A word that comes to mind when we hear things like this is hopelessness. Positively or negatively, hope is incredibly powerful. The Swiss theologian Emil Brunner said, What oxygen is to the lungs, hope is to life. The text before us today is all about God breathing hope back into humanity. After the judgment at the Tower of Babel, people needed hope. Hope through reminding us of the promise way back in Genesis 3.15. Please look with me, starting in verse 10 of chapter 11. This is the account of Shem. Two years after the flood, when Shem was 100 years old, he became the father of Arphaxad. And after he became the father of Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arphaxad had lived 35 years, he became the father of Shelah. And after he became the father of Shelah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he became the father of Eber. And after he became the father of Eber, Shelah lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he became the father of Peleg. And after he became the father of Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he became the father of Reu. And after he became the father of Reu, Peleg lived 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he became the father of Serug. And after he became the father of Serug, Reu lived 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he became the father of Nahor. And after he became the father of Nahor, Serug lived 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he became the father of Terah. And after he became the father of Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and had other sons and daughters. And after Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram 
Nahor, and Haran. This is the account of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans, in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, son of Haran, his daughter-in-law Sarai, his wife of the son of Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Haran lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. Now, chapter 10 and 11 get us from the flood to Abram. Chapter 10 is the scattering of the peoples after the flood. Then we have the judgment at the Tower of Babel in, in chapter 11, the first nine verses. And after the judgment in Babel, Moses picks back up with the account of Shem. And here we're introduced to the fifth section that Moses puts aside, the generations of, the accounts of. This is the fifth section, by far one of the longest sections in Genesis. This this section will take us all the way into chapter 25. And the purpose here is to shift gears, if you will, and prepare for the coming of Abram to shift the cycle from what we have seen so far in Genesis. There's been a cycle of sin and judgment, a downward spiral, if you will, the fall, the first murder, the flood, the tower. And God begins to give a little hope. He wants to breathe hope back in. And Moses does this by retracing the promised line. This is the promise, the line of promise, that we go all the way back to Genesis 3, verse 15, where we read, there there will be a seed, a promised seed that will come, that will crush Satan's head while he nips at his heel that the, this is the line that will bring forth the promised Savior. And what God wants us to see here is that this is a generation of hope. And first of all, a generation of life. These, this is a generation of life. At first blush, this doesn't look like such a hopeful genealogy, does it? One of the first things you notice I don't know if you noticed it, but as I read that, you see that lifespans begin to decrease, don't you? Right? Back in chapter 5, we had these immense long lifespans of 5, 6, 7, 8, even 900 years. And here after the flood, you see the decrease from Shem, who lived 500 years, all the way down to Terah, who lived 205 years. And... What we can deduce from that is that sin is taking its toll through the generations on man. 
Sin is taking its toll. It always does. Here's a helpful alliteration for you if you need mnemonics like that. Sin saps us spiritually. Sin always does. It's clear that this lineage is worded to give great hope. So clear was this section to Martin Luther that he wrote about it. This generation of the Holy Fathers is set before us to show us that by the mercy of God, the remnants were preserved and the church was not entirely wiped out. And we see that most, that most apparently by comparing the lineages of promise. I mean, if, you, if you're sitting there and you have your Bible, you can flip back and put your finger in chapter 5 because chapter 5 is the lineage from, Noah, from Adam to Noah. That's the lineage of promise before the flood. And as we looked at that, we saw that it was a downward spiral until every inclination of their hearts was evil. But then he picks up right after the flood. God, God picks up the lineage of promise here in chapter 11, verse 10. And there are striking similarities between these two genealogies, aren't there? There's a similar cadence, the cadence of the name and then the age, and then became father of and lived X number of years. That same cadence you have in chapter 5 and chapter 11. Yet there's a striking difference. Did you notice it? We're in chapter 5. The end of that was those three words, right? And he died. Yet here... After every mention of every person, what does the text say? And had other sons and daughters. This is a genealogy that is meant to give hope and promise and life to, to the people. James Boyce, the great pastor and theologian of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, wrote, The good news of the message of God to man in Genesis is that because God is active in history, history is not just a mere existence of man. It is going someplace along a path. Because God is, is sovereign over history, history is going someplace along the path. And as you read these genealogies, people, you have to realize that God is doing something here. He's bringing people along a path. These aren't just boring patriarchal names. God has a purpose for this. He's furthering his plan. That plan, actually, that we're celebrating starting this week in this church, this, this Advent season. Why, do, why are we even celebrating that? All we're doing is looking back at the, at the fruition of the plan that we're reading about Right here. God had a plan from the very beginning to bring about this promise, the fulfillment of the promise that we look back to, the birth of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what the genealogies in the Bible are all about. In your discovery notes, if you are so inclined, you'll see that there's a challenge there to... Flip through your Bible, leaf through your Bible, and just find the genealogies. Find out where they are. And maybe read a couple of them. 
And then sit back and think, why did God deem it necessary to catalog all these people? And I will put it to you so that in some way, shape, or form, what God is doing is tracing the promise of his seed. They're all about Christ. See, the line of promise leads all the way from here to the manger, where God's promise to crush the deceiver is born, where God's promise to reverse the curse is born, where God's promise to welcome his sons and daughters back home is born. And he can do that because this is also not just a generation of life, but a generation of grace. That's what we're meant to notice as well. This is a generation of grace. We've seen this thus far in Genesis, haven't we? The increase of sin in the world is matched by an increase in God's grace. I mean, Romans 5.20 is not new. It's found back here in the first 11 chapters of Genesis where sin increased, grace increased all the more. How did he do that, you might say? How, how did God's grace increase all the more through this judgment? Well, we saw it at Adam and Eve at the fall, didn't we? Here they, they rebel against God. I want to decide what I want to do when I want to do it. And God could have wiped it clean. And instead he says, no, I promise that I'll come and I'll make it all right. We saw this with Cain's murder. As he murders his brother. Where did grace increase there? My goodness. He puts a mark on Cain and says, He's, I'm going to preserve you. Are you kidding me? Where he deserved death, God gives life. We saw that at the flood where there is going to be this catastrophic, complete judgment on the world, yet he provides an ark. And we see it here at the judgment of Babel. With God's increased grace through the generations of Terah. Here we have in verse 27 a new section that God has started. The sixth section. The account of Terah, the generations of Terah. The longest by far, it'll take us into verse 20, chapter 25. And with that, we move from what has been called the primeval history to the patriarchal period. Into more of a narrative where there's just not a name on a, in a list, but a life on a page. We move into the details of life and we see that right here with Tara's family. We're told in the verses 27 through 32 where he lived. He lived in Ur of the Chaldees. Who he married. And even what they believed. Did you? This is harder to see here, perhaps. What did Tara and his family believe? Well, from their names, because when you name somebody, you're actually saying something. You're, you're honoring 
something by naming. We do that today when you name your child in honor of an uncle that you loved or a father that you loved. They did the same things. Their names, we can deduce that Tara and his family were pagan moon worshipers. From archaeology, we know that both Ur and where they traveled to, Haran, were, were centers of moon worship. That alone doesn't indict Tara, but their names, Tara, meaning moon, or Sarai, which is she's named after the queen of the moon god, and Milka, named after the daughter. These names show that they were honoring who they worshipped. If there's any doubt, Joshua removes that at the end of his book when he, after the conquest of the promised land, he's challenging the people. He writes, Long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abram, Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. So Abram's family were pagan idolaters. They prayed and they lifted their arms to the moon god. They prayed and depended on that moon god. And the grace that we see here is that in spite of that, God called them. God called Abram out of that. He didn't look down and see this good man. What a righteous man. I'm going to call him to start my family. He looked down at a pagan moon worshiper who probably witnessed or participated in the human sacrifices that went along with it. And he called him out. By God's sheer grace, because God chose him, isn't that the very essence, the very definition of grace? You don't do anything to earn it. Mercy is withholding something you deserve, but grace is giving you something you don't deserve. And that's what Yahweh was doing with Abram. Giving something undeservedly. That's what Paul's trying to get across when you read that section. I love this section of the book of, of 1 Corinthians. Trying to get across to them that you don't, you don't deserve God's grace. He, he loves you in spite of yourself. And he writes, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Brothers and sisters, think of who you were when you were called. He goes on, Not many of you were wise by human standards. We might think we are. Not many of you were influential. We love to boast about that. Not many of you were noble of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things to to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things of this world, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. Brothers and sisters, this is describing us too. So that no one may boast before him. None of us here can boast that we 
chose God. That's kind of a language thing we use, but it's not biblically true. God reached down and pulled you, as Jude says, like an ember out of the fire. Paul is saying, you Corinthians, you Southwestians, you're unworthy pagans. Real nobodies. Nothing specials. Saved by sheer, unadulterated grace. You have nothing to boast about. That's how we're all called. Out of sheer grace. Whether you grow up inside the church or outside the church. Outside the church, maybe some of you can understand this a little better than those of us who grew up inside the church. You realize what you've been saved from and to. Those of us that grew up inside the church, you know, we're like the people of Israel that Paul is writing about in chapter 9. You know, you have... You have the Torah, you have the temple, you have all the trappings around you. But then he goes on to say, not all Israel is true Israel. Saying you can grow up, kids, you can grow up in the church and still not know Jesus Christ as your Savior. You've been saved from something like Abram, we're all pagan. We worship something else. We worshiped money or power or influence or prestige or reputation or yourself. And the only difference between you and me who claim Christ and the person in Southwest Harbor that's going to the hardware store right now and doesn't even have Jesus on his mind is that when either by the move of the Spirit or brother and sister come alongside you and say, brother, I think that you're sinning in this way. The only difference is that we repent. That's it. We acknowledge it. We actually say, yeah, (laughs) I'm acting like a pagan right now. Thank you, Spirit. Thank you, brother. Thank you, sister. And we hit our knees and we repent. We still sin. We still put things above God, don't we? We still depend more on other things than on God, don't we? We still internally raise our hands to things other than Yahweh. We do. But when that's brought to our attention, our heart melts. That's the evidence that you have the Spirit within you. The difference is that believers acknowledge that they are weak, that they are foolish, that they are lowly and that they need Christ. Because we have nothing to boast about. Because we've all been saved by grace, just like Abram, plucked out of the fire.
I think lastly, we're meant to notice that this is the generation of Christ, generation of life and a generation of Christ. We have to remember that this list of names is not given to calculate time. Although ages are given, it's not meant to calculate time. That's the error that Bishop Usher made back in the 17th century when he took all, all the ages and he put them together and he calculated that on October 23rd of 4004 BC, maybe some of you have heard this date before, creation started. That's not the purpose of these. Now, this lineage has much more and higher purpose than tracing the, ant, the beginning of creation. It has the purpose of tracing the lineage of Jesus Christ. And the last way we see this is through verse 30. If you look at verse 30, Moses drops a little grenade here. In, in a rather dry, detail-less narrative, we're told that Sarai was barren. She had no children. John Walton in his commentary says, this verse brings everything to a screeching halt. Abram's wife is barren. Here we have this, this genealogy that is really about life and hope, right? It's It's... They had children, and they had other sons and daughters, and other sons and daughters, and other sons and daughters, and then we get to Abram, the man. Wife is barren. It's meant. It's put there. Not in chapter 12. Not, in, not after Abraham's call, but right here. To stop us short. Well, it's interesting that barrenness is a theme throughout Scripture, isn't it? Abraham's wife here. Next generation, Isaac's wife, Rebecca. Next generation, Jacob's wife, Rachel. If you keep looking through Scripture, you find that uh, Samson's mother was barren, Manoah's wife. And you, you read into, into uh, Samuel and you find out that Hannah was barren. And the commonality in all of them the Bible says in each case that God supernaturally opened their womb, gave them a child, fulfilled the promise. And I think that it's only a short step to realize that this is just foreshadowing yet another different kind of barrenness, isn't it? Luke's Gospel starts with the angel Gabriel visiting Mary and telling Mary, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son and you're to give him the name of Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. There you even have the reference to the, to the promise that we read this morning with the, with the wreath. Mary says, how will this be since I am a virgin? My womb is empty. 
The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be born, will be called the Son of God. God supernaturally, supernaturally brings forth the fulfillment of the Genesis 11 genealogy. Jesus Christ. In our closing hymn today, we're going to sing about the long-expected Jesus. And the first line says, Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sin release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Jesus was born to set us free from sin. Now that might sound very rudimentary, very basic. Okay, Blake, that's kind of a boring way to end the sermon. I disciple a few men on Friday mornings. And it was interesting, this Friday morning we had a great conversation, as, as usual. We talked this week about how we present Jesus to people. How we share our faith. And, and it was brought up that many times we, we go for the felt need. You know, if a person is lonely, how we share Christ is kind of saying, well, if you give your life to Christ, you won't be lonely anymore. Or if a person is an outcast, we present it as, you know, if you give your life to Jesus, you're welcomed into a community, you're accepted or if a person is depressed, we tell them, you know what your solution, the solution is? It's Jesus. Or if a person's marriage is a mess, we say, just, you know, if you give your life to Jesus, he'll begin to mend that. In other words, do we share the gospel or are we promising to fix felt needs? This is a temptation. If you've ever shared Christ, if you've ever shared Christ, this is a real temptation. To preach the gospel where Jesus is the answer to all their problems, right? Jesus is the answer. But the problem that is at the root of all this is that that's not what needs fixing. Loneliness, marriage, Depression. What Jesus offers is the forgiveness of your sins. But that's not their felt need, is it? You know, when we, when we preach the gospel, when we, conf- when we tell people the gospel, many times that seems like a non sequitur, doesn't it? My marriage is a mess. You need your sins to be absolved and forgiven, absorbed in Jesus. But that's why Jesus was born, people. That's why Jesus was born. Not to fix marriages. Not to fix depression. Not to fix a a messed up life. You know what? When people ask you, say, "Will, will he fix my marriage? I don't know. But he'll forgive your sin. Because that's why he came. 
the God's honest truth is that if you accept Jesus, his free gift of forgiveness of sins, your loneliness might never vanish. Your marriage might not ever get better. Your messy life might not get straightened out. But what we can say with 100% assurance that your sins will be forgiven. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your son. I thank you for that simplicity that we just heard about, that you forgive sins. Praise you for that. And that is enough. In Jesus' name, amen.